0: Greetings to all my tech heads out there in the Kev Techify Nation, and if you're new here, welcome. In this episode, we're going to look at access control. We'll be discussing authentication with local password, AAA components of authentication, authorization, and accounting, and finally we'll talk about 802.1x. This episode is part of my series on switching, routing, and wireless essentials for the Cisco Certified Networking Associate, also known as the CCNA. I'm Kevin here at KevTechify. Let's get this adventure started what we're talking about is accessing your devices on your network accessing those networking devices we're talking about routers and switches maybe firewalls adaptive security appliances asas those devices that run your network. We're not necessarily talking about operating systems at this point, what we're talking about is accessing those networking devices. What you're gonna do is set up a password so that way our you can use it to get into your virtual terminals, your, your Telnet, your SSH connections. The easy way right here is to go into global configuration mode and then we're going in, into our virtual terminals. What you have to do is you have to make sure you get the first five, because those are configured as a group. If you apply a setting to one of them, uh, it activates the other ones, but the settings don't get applied. So you gotta make sure you have that range in there of zero to four, that's the minimum range. There are 16 ports available, so that's zero to 15. Sometimes you see uh, people say, make sure you do the zero to 15. I like to do the zero to 15 because that covers all 16 ports. Technically, you only have to do the zero to four. I, traditionally, I like to do the zero to 15. It covers all of them and that way you know everything is set. Then you come in and you apply, a. you set a password. I like this password to a degree. I mean, it's not as long as it should be. It should be longer. It should be eight or 10 characters long, but it does have a couple things in it. It does have a lowercase letter. You should have an uppercase, so we're missing that. It's missing an upper, and so it's missing an upper. It's missing a symbol, like the at sign, the pound sign, the dollar sign, the shift two, the shift three, the shift four keys. So it is missing that symbol. But everybody in today's world likes imposing letters to make sort of what we call lead speak. We change the S to a five, and that's what's happened right here. We changed the S to a five then we change the O to a zero. Oh, we're gonna make our words complicated. And they do that to everything. And that's one of the first things a hacker does is that they're trying to attack your system. They they start with a dictionary attack to make sure you don't use a dictionary word. Don't use a a word that's found right in a dictionary that way. So what people do is okay, let's go ahead and change the S's to fives and, and the O's to zeros, the E's to threes, and and so that's what the hacker tries and they 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 substitute all those and you can do that in a program and it does it all automatically for you what they did here is they actually skipped one they didn't do that a lot of times the i here gets changed to a one and they didn't change that and so it's a mixed combination and i really like that because you can't substitute all of them and so it'll take your hacker longer to get through Once you set that password, then you have to apply it to the login process. And that's what this last step is. A lot of times people forget to do that. Well, I set the password. Yep, you set the password. Now we need to tell the login process to actually use that password. Don't forget that last step here. This here, this is done, this is Telnet. If we recall, Telnet's a way to access the virtual terminal across the internet. But the bad part is, it is unencrypted so it's unencrypted meaning if somebody a threat actor that person that's trying to attack your network was actually on your network and was able to sniff the traffic or if they are connected into the same access point so they could see your traffic going through the air they would see you when you typed in your password this would come across in clear text the c the i the five the C and the zero would come across in clear text and they'd be able to see it. Now they know your password to get remote access to your devices. The better solution is using SSH, the secure shell. And that's what this example down here, there's more steps to doing the SSH, but when that traffic goes across your network, it's encrypted and Once again, to review the steps here, first thing we need to do is set a domain. This domain here is part of the SSH protocol. You need to have a domain, so that way it can look for the users in there. Personally, for me, I don't like to use the company's domain name. When you start doing that, you're probably going to run into issues on your DNS because if somebody types in example.com in the web browser, it's going to go to your website. There's a good chance that if you have a Microsoft system with Active Directory and the Active DNS, that's going to use your domain name. What I like to do is, yes, use the company top-level domain, so example.com, but I like to add in something like maybe network or something like that. So it's network.example.com, the network.example.com. That way it's different, but you still have your domain name. And, and you don't have to have just two two parts to your domain name. You can have as many as you want. So up here is three. If you if four is appropriate, that would also work. If you want devices dot network.example.com, you could have that. I should tra- like I said, I traditionally don't use the first level domain name. After you do that, we generate our crypto key. That's the thing that does. The encryption, that's, that's the key used to make the encryption and then to unencrypt on the far side. This modulus is how long is that key? How long is the key for encryption? Some systems when they generate the key is they, they give you a 512 key. 512 key has been found insecure. And actually there's some clients out there that won't even use a 512 key because it's too insecure. And what I mean by insecure is they, they, they've they been shown that with a key that short, 512 characters long, yeah, that's a really long character, but to computers and with computational power what it is today, they can brute force that attack to figure out what that key is and get into your system. 512 is too short. Most client SSH, applications require 1024. Good measure, a lot of people say use our 2048 use the 2048. And by default, that's typically what I do. Then after you generate this key, it's gonna give you some messages, it's gonna give you some information in here. It'll give you a couple extra lines that wasn't showing up here. Then you create your username. You have to create these usernames on the system you wanna log into. Once again, we're doing local passwords. And so you create the username. You can either say secret or password here. Secret encrypts this. So if you do a show run, it'll come across as uh, random letters and numbers. If you put the word password in there, it's gonna show exactly what you type. And then you have your password. And, and here, this, in my opinion, is a pretty good password. Besides being an, an example that we're showing everybody, it has everything. It has our uppercase. It has our lowercase, it has numbers, but we don't have a symbol. So that's why I say pretty good, it's not an excellent. We are missing a symbol. Older systems used to get tripped up on symbols. They used to not accept symbols on there. As as systems have evolved, more and more operating systems, more and more different devices, they start to allow you to have symbols in your passwords. The common symbols, a lot of times the shift number symbols, those typically are accepted on most systems nowadays. The other key, the other symbols, the ones on the right hand, the side of the keyboard by the enter sign that aren't associated with a shift number concept, those some some systems may include, some may not. Because if you include those symbols over there by the enter key, those actually come in as programming symbols. And then when you send that to a server, hopefully the server's set up to kick those out and you can't necessarily use them. But you should be able to use the exclamation mark, the at sign, the pound sign, the dollar sign, the percent sign, the shift one, two, three, four, five. You should be able to use all those in the system. That's the only thing I would add to this password to make it a good password. Then after you have your passwords, we set up the version two of SSH. Version one, it's a little bit older. It's not as secure. It doesn't allow you to do some of the changes you need to do. And a lot of the current clients nowadays don't support version one anymore. They only support support version two. So make sure you do that. Once you have the SSH set up, now we have to say, okay, let's go ahead and use that. That's where we go in here. We go into our line, VT Virtual Terminal, VTY zero to four. I prefer to use the 0 to 15 make sure we cover all 16 of those then we have to say we're going to change that transport change the technology we're using to transport our data between the client and the server that's transport and so it's coming into the server so it's transport input and then ssh if you only want to do ssh and you don't want to tell them that to happen just put ssh right here if you want to do ssh but you also want to have the backup of Telnet. You can go ahead and put Telnet in there. But once again, Telnet's not secure. I wouldn't necessarily use it. And then the last thing you have to do is say login, and then you have to tell it exactly what to use. We wanted to use the local password. So login space local, we're going to use the local passwords. Our local passwords are any user we set up here. And so when you go and you connect in with SSH, it's going to ask you for your username. It's going to ask you for your password. It has to be on that device. There are some limitations here with using the local password. First limitation is that it has to be a user you created. So it has to be here. If it's not a user you created on that device, it's not going to work. You can't log in using that. You got two routers. You have to create that user account twice, one on one router, one on a second router. For a small network, this works pretty good. Imagine having a hundred devices on your network. You hire in a new network person. You have to go around to each one of those hundred persons and add that in. The other downfall with using this login local, is there's no backup. If for some reason you lose this username and password, you can't get into that system. You're gonna wind up doing password recovery at that point in time. And you do password recovery, what I do is I go to cisco.com, I type in password recovery, and then put the model number of the device I'm trying to do. That's the easiest way to, for me to tell you how to do password recovery. Each system's a little bit different, but like I said, you lose that password, you can't get in if you just have login local. I hope you are liking this episode on access control. If you have the time, please leave me a comment and let me know what you think about access control. You can also visit my website at kevtechify.com for all of my details and how to get these episodes in video and podcast form. When we're thinking about giving access to a user to get onto our system, one of the things we should be thinking about is what we call AAA. Now this is not the autom- automobile Association of America. What this is, is this is authentication, authorization, and accounting. These are the three steps you should be doing anytime you give anybody access to your system. First step is authentication. Who is permitted to get into my system? And typically it has the credentials there to get in there. Username, password, certificates required. And that authenticates the user. Who is that person? They authenticate who they are. Second one is authorized. Once they've authenticated, authorization is what can they do they can get into this vlan but they can't get into the other vlan if it's a windows system they can see this directory but not this directory they can read this directory and can't make changes to it but on their home directory they have full control and then the third a is accounting it keeps track of what that person does once they've authenticated, once they got their authorization, now what did they actually do? Did they go in there and connect into a router? And we want to know that. Okay, this person is responsible for maintaining a routers, so that makes sense. But if this person connects into your router and is a shop floor employee, there's no reason he should be doing that, and, and so we can keep track of that. Did this person go into this folder and delete the HR manual? Well, then we have our permissions set up. We need to restore from backup and get it up and going. But these all work together. The authentication, the authorization, and the accounting. The authentication. There's kind of two ways we can do authentication. And once again, we're this part, we're talking about authentication for our networking devices. The routers, the switches, any other devices on our network that supplies network functionality. We have local and we have server based AAA authentication local authentication is what we just talked about where you create a user local to your system and it's only listed there and if you want to give that user access to another networking device so a second router you have to go and create that user there it stores those names locally it's not on anywhere else but that one device they authenticate against that local device. And once again, it's f- ideal for small networks. Two, three routers on your device or two, three devices on your network, router, two switches, that's perfect. But when you start talking hundreds of devices, you don't want to have to go through and, and put those usernames on each one. That's where something like the server-based access control or triple A comes in, routers, Switches, other networking devices, they connect to a central AAA server. They connect to that trip, central AAA server. So each router connects into that. That AAA server contains usernames and passwords. That way you only have to set up the username and password in one location and it connects back in and then those devices connect back into that AAA server and use those usernames and passwords to give them permissions on your routers and switches, your networking devices. Now, there are two methods that we typically see. We typically see the remote authentication dial-in user services, or that's a RADIUS. And the second system is the terminal access controller access control system, or TACACS that you'll hear people say. I, I do love that name, terminal access controller Access control system. Radius or TACX server, they are both d- two different types of servers. They both have usernames, they have passwords on them, they have permissions on what you can do, they have logging features. They all communicate with your end devices. And once again, this is set up for a lot of devices, a lot of switches, a lot of routers, whatever you have for networking devices. Normally I don't use one or the other. Normally I use both of these systems together. Now, why would I do that? Well, the server base makes it easier, especially if you have lots of users. So for me, this is lots of users, one location for username and password combinations, that's where it's stored. That's what it is. You roll out a new device, you connect it in, you point it to that AAA server, They, they it's all set up. But I also set up a local password. And for me, this is the emergency account. And what do I mean by emergency is what happens when this server-based, this server goes away for whatever reason. The server goes down, it gets unplugged. The connection to it is no longer working. Nobody can log into your devices. So I created an emergency account here. This account, uh, I typically set up with the username about, I don't know, about 20 characters long and I use it randomly generated. So it doesn't make sense, so it's not administrator. And so I randomly generate that. Password here, password I set up at about 30 to 40 characters long. So it's almost impossible to guess. Then what I do is I print it out, these passwords. Oh no, you're printing it out. well. This is the emergency. And at this point in time, I go and I give it to somebody who's got some sort of way of locking it up. A lot of times the president has a safe in his office. A lot of times the vice presidents maybe have a safe. The vice president of finance has a safe in his office because a lot of times he has cash in that or something like that. Maybe you put it in the bank, in your safety deposit box you're really concerned about that, what you do is then you divide your username in half. You give the front half to one person, you give the back half to the last person, you divide your passwords the same way. You split it in half. And then that way, anytime anybody needs to get into that system, they have to go to two people, get those lists, combine it for the username, combine it for the password, and then get in. But you are still able to get into those systems at that point in time. I've also heard the argument that if your server does get away and and you can't get into it, your hard drive blew up on your Radius or your TacX server. You lost all that information. Well, then you just do password recovery. Yes, that is a valid argument. Password recovery, that process, you bypass the boot up. You can load in the saved config after you were into that system and then change your password. Yeah, you could do that also. This password process up here, yes, you can be used for our networking devices. I also see this be, being used quite a bit for our network systems. Um, in particular, like our Windows server, the administrator account. You never leave the administrator account, always strip out the privileges for the administrator account. So if a hacker does get into the administrator, there's no permissions, but I always create a user account with all the administrative permissions. I use this concept here, about 20 characters long, randomly generated, password is really crazy. I split it in half, I give it to two people that can lock those up and that's that's a good practice. Second step here is authorization. Once the person gets into our system, once they supplied that username and password, authenticating against the local database, the, the username, and password that's on that device or using some sort of server, TACACS or RADIUS server, then we figure out what can they do. Now, once they're authenticated, authorization doesn't require them to enter in their username and password together. It follows right away. We can see this. You can go in there and set different permissions. On a Cisco router, it's the different security levels that allow them to either see user exec mode stuff privilege exec mode stuff actually make changes so there's different levels there on a windows system once again it's all the permissions what can they do at that point in time we call this a set of attributes the security attributes associated with that count the attributes associated with the authorization and so that's used in conjunction on that AAA server and finally we have accounting and that's keeping track of what's happening it collects it and it reports that usage. Depending upon the system, it may be just a log file that's it. got lots of text in it, or sometimes you can, the system you're using will give you nice, pretty reports, or a lot of times you can take those log files, those text-based ones, and import it into a, a reporting tool where it gives you those nice reports. Some of the information we look at is, when did they connect in? Well, everybody should be connecting in during business hours. Well, Johnny connected in at 2 a.m. Okay, if Johnny's an IT engineer performing a system upgrade on your system and he lets you know ahead of time that hey, I'm going to do this upgrade at 2 a.m., then that makes sense. But if Johnny is an office worker who only works 8 to 5 every day and you don't have and he shouldn't be working at 2 a.m. from at home then maybe his account was compromised and the threat actor is using that to get access into your system. So it's doing that. And then we also keep track of what commands did they execute. Now, some people, they can open up Word documents. They can get into that. If you're looking at a Windows system, on a Cisco system, if it's your intern, maybe it's just some show commands they can execute. They can't actually go in and change IP addresses on interfaces. And so you want to keep track of that. How many packets, how many bytes did they actually send? How much work did they actually do? Well, if they compromised your system and got into your router and then connected to other devices, then there's gonna be a lot of packets there. But if it was just Johnny doing that 2 a.m. system upgrade and it's a low number of packets, because all he's doing is, is changing some IP addresses on interfaces or something like that, well, then that makes sense. And once again, this all combines together. This all combines together. uh, It combines with the authentication, the authorization, and in the accounting. And it's a very detailed log. It's really impressive to see what they can keep track of for that. And if they don't keep track of what you want for some reason, you can set up custom logs too to keep track of that. Another protocol we use to secure our network is 802.1X. What this is, is an IEEE standard. It's port-based access control. Port-based, meaning when a computer plugs into the switch, we're gonna control what that device can do on our network based upon how they log in. Now, login could be through a username and password. It could be through a certificate on the server, a couple of different ways to authenticate, but, it's going to be based upon what permissions you set up. The authentication server, it authenticates on what's happening when you connect to the switch before any network access is is given to that device. You need to authenticate who you are, what this device is, before they give you access to the network. And how this this works is the client, or what we typically call the supplicant, is the device that's connecting in. And they're asking to get permission. And what they have to do is they they have to run a client version of the 802.1X compliant software. And it, it sits there and anytime it detects that connection coming up, it runs. So it has to run a piece of software on it. Then when it connects in, it it goes to the authenticator. The authenticator is this intermediary switch. And so it's an intermediary. I think I spelled that right. It's the intermediary. What that switch does, it says, okay, this, this device connected in on this port. They gave me this credentials at this point in time. What it does is it sends a request to the authentication server the authentication server responds back with saying okay it's authenticated it and we authorize it to do this have access to a certain vlan have access to different networks and so it's sort of an intermediary we don't contr- we don't store any of the authentication on it that's why it's called the authenticator and then the, the last component here is the authentication server. This is where all of our credentials are stored. It validates the the device, whatever credentials it gave, it validates it. So it's a certificate, username, and password. It, it also keeps track of the authorization, what they're doing, and of course we have the accounting. So it does do AAA, our service, the authentic, authentication, authorization, and accounting. One thing to notice here, this is a switch but you could just substitute this in as an access point. The access point could be an act, an authenticator and it would communicate with that server. It was my pleasure to provide you with this wonderful episode on access control. If you like this episode and you got value out of it and depending upon what platform you're using, please click that like button, give a five-star rating, leave a comment. This all helps me bring you more great content. Please take a minute to subscribe to my channel all of my socials and contact information are on my website cavtechify.com there you can find out how to get all these episodes in video and podcast form in the upper right is my playlist for my series on switching routing wireless essentials for the ccna in the bottom right is one of my favorite videos that i linked just for you thank you so much for watching this episode of my series on switching routing and wireless essentials once again i'm kevin this is cav techify I'll see you next time for another great adventure.